Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Jared W. and Todd A. On the show today is Glenn Jobling, Engineering Director of Adelaide Control Engineering, a modular process engineering solutions group based in Adelaide, South Australia. The company is focused on uranium processing solutions for both conventional and ISR mining methods, as well as solutions for the wastewater industry. You can learn more about Adelaide Control Engineering via their website, adelaidecontrolengineering.com. Glenn, it's good to have you on the show. Uh, Nice to be here, Andrew. Thank you for the invite. So, Glenn, you and I, we met up uh, at the 2019 OZM Uranium Conference in Adelaide earlier this year, and you were kind enough to follow through with coming on the show to, to share some of your thoughts and, and expertise. I uh, appreciate that. Well, Glenn, let's start off. Let's uh, have you tell the audience about your background and experience before coming to Adelaide Control. So, I'm, I'm an instrument technician by trade and electronic and electrical engineer by degree. I formed Adelaide, well, I formed GJC Engineers back about 30 years ago, 25 years ago. And then in 1999, we got involved in the uranium industry because um, Heathgate Resources, which owned the Beverly Uranium Mine in South Australia, were building a new mine in 1999, one of the first new mines for about 20 years because the uranium price at that point was 12, 15 bucks a pound. And um, we got involved in that mine and that was the beginning of our uranium experience. We um, built part of that plant and helped them commission and start it up in 99 through the very difficult low price years and and then continued on um, when things picked up and the price picked up for them to make some serious money. And then following that, we we um, designed and built the the back end of um, Langer Heinrich in about 2007, 2008. So that that was how we got into uranium, and we're electrical, mechanical, and chemical engineers, and and we don't really sell pumps and and motors and gearboxes or particular pieces of equipment. We sell process solutions. So we sell the complete drum packing plant or the complete calcining and drying plant, which contains a number of hundreds of items and equipment and put them together as a package, as a process. So that's that's um, a bit of our background. And, and over the last 20 years, you know, from the customers, the drivers, Customers are the drivers. The customers always want a better product and they want it at a lower price and they want some lower operating costs or maintenance costs to try and make their plant more operable or more cost competitive in the tough times and the boom times. It all goes back to the bottom profit line. 
So perhaps that's just a little bit about our background. And I guess we could talk about modular plants and test plants too, Andrew, if you if you would like. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to get into some of the in, uh, specific uh, solutions here in a moment. Um, let's let's go back to the market for a moment. Uh, how are things looking on your side, Glenn? Um, are you, are you getting lots of calls these days and requests uh, for proposals from from uranium participants? Uh, how is the market today versus a decade ago when when certainly things were a little bit better for the uranium market? The commodity price, you know, first of all, uranium isn't traded on uh, London's metal exchange. It's it's really just dictated by what the spot price is you can get, and that might be by a small number of groups. So it's an unusual metal because it's not traded on the London market, and whilst the spot price is very low. Or, or a site doesn't have a long-term high-value contract, um, their profitability has plummeted. And so their inquiries for upgrades and expansions have decreased to very little. But we have the other plants that uranium is a byproduct, like the Olympic dams, BHP's Olympic dam in, in Australia, and if it's a state-owned entity feeding a vertically integrated uh, nuclear business, such as the Chinese, then business is continuing on. So the, the short answer, the number of inquiries have decreased from weekly to monthly, but they're still there and um, business is continuing on, albeit at a, at a lower pace, because the uranium spot price is very low. So you don't see any of the new entrants into the market. You just see the older established ones, whether they're sponsored by the state or the government, or it's a byproduct that they must extract the uranium so that they can sell their copper on the world stage. So um, it's slowed up, but it's still there. You know, we're still designing, building and tendering plants and the the overarching requirement for us is to make more cost-effective, lower operating cost plants for everybody in the world and better environmentally. You know, you can't have any dust emissions or environmental impacts. So the driver to make it more uh, safer and better OH&S conditions continues for everybody in the world, even in a tough economic market. Right. I would certainly add that we have a, a long-term contract cliff that's coming up with with a lot of utilities around the world, uh, you know, specifically in the U.S. and in Europe. That also could, could certainly be a uh, substantial driver of this market going forward where utilities come out and look to recontract and get some new supply lines coming. So I think that's, that's going to be a nice catalyst for this industry going forward. How about the wastewater business? Is that a little bit more steady? And, and tell us how you got into that and briefly, uh, what solutions are you delivering uh, on that side? Well, the, the wastewater is almost every mine in the world has a tailings dam or a wastewater dam, and and we realise that. And and most mines not as well designed as everybody would like them to be, and so they have an excess of water. So we got into treating some of that wastewater simply by necessity. You know, there's been some terrible disasters. You know, the the Samarco um, tailings dam failure and uh, more recently uh, another one. Um, if you can decrease your tailings um, dam water content, then you can reduce your risk and environmental impact. So we just got into that by necessity, by necessity because of the clients. And we've just been slowly progressing along and selling some solutions. 
They're not as pronounced in the uranium industry as other industries, but, you know, that's that's a constant business for us and we'll continue to look after it. And tell us about the uh, the capabilities at Adelaide Control. What size projects are you taking on? What is the personnel capabilities? And do you handle everything from design to fabrication, installation in-house? So we are mechanical, electrical, chemical process engineers. We have all those skills in-house, the engineering skills. We do the detail design and drafting and the control systems for the plants. We build modular plants that can fit into or be in a shipping container size so that we can ship them anywhere in the world. Typically a container module costs about two and a half million bucks, you know, regardless of the module, whether it be a, a dewatering module for uranium or a calcining module or a off-gas module um, or a packing module there, you know, between one and two million dollars each. And we have the ability um, fixed to do turnkey projects up to about $10 million in fixed price turnkey. And we can deliver a number of containers, typically a container every um, two months to three months. If it's an existing design, we can build them quicker. If it's more custom, they take a little longer. But what we've tried to do is make standard dewatering modules and calcining modules for the uranium industry and amortize all the engineering over a number of projects. That's how we've lowered the cost. So um, if you keep building custom one-offs, the engineering component is a large percentage of the cost. If you can amortize that cost over three or four projects, then um, even the Chinese can't beat us in the capital cost of a proven tested module that we can sell out of Australia and sell it in, into anywhere in the world and it arrives fully commissioned and tested and really just needs to be connected into their process and and started up. So um, it, it becomes, you can control the price and the quality because it's built in a first world country with all the skills locally and you can deliver it and you know it's going to work because it was wired correctly and tested, already tested before it shipped. And, and we do all the control system. We can remotely support all the plants from Australia. You know, control systems have advanced immensely and we can troubleshoot and support our clients anywhere in the world from here to tell them what we believe a fault might be or the problem where they should look. So things have changed. Things are, you know, the driver to lower the cost, improve the quality and also improve the OHS environment. You know, that's the overarching Alara as the uranium industry for dust and emissions as low as reasonably achievable. And so we keep striving to build better plants, better processes to lower the capital cost and operating costs for our clients to be competitive in the future. Well, Glenn, let's do a, uh, a scenario. Let's say that uh, we've got a, a 3 million pound uranium per annum project that's seeking, seeking a proposal for uh, the drumming and the, uh, the drying uh, operation. And, and you can fill me in on the details, but let's say you've got that size of a project. How many modular shipping containers are we talking about? What is your time frame to be able to, to build this out and deliver it, assuming it's your standard models? And can you kind of give us a capital cost based on that? Just a rough ballpark. A three million pound per annum, it could go up perhaps even higher. It could go to five million. The standard module will go to about five million pounds. So um, a dewatering module, kiln module, 
and an off-gas module and a packing module will cost about $8 million and it'll consist of two 20-foot shipping container sizes and two 40-foot shipping container sizes. With the, They're not standard shipping containers. These are containers that have side opening, the long side opening doors so that we use the container to ship a module anywhere in the world. But when we get to the site, we actually take the doors off the long side and all the equipment is pre-assembled and pre-tested inside. So, you know, we can deliver a plant in about, if you were to build a complete plant, it would take us six months and um, it would take probably only four weeks on site and we could go from nothing to full operation in four weeks. So if it was a retrofit to an existing plant, we could put it into a shed next to the existing drying and packing plant and put the new equipment in there in four weeks and start it up to full nameplate rate. Now, Glenn, how about, let's say you've got some orders and stuff. What happens to your guys' capabilities if you have, you know, a couple of orders that are in? Uh, obviously, that time that timeline must increase. Is that correct? Not necessarily. We, if we, if it's a standard module, we've done all the engineering. We contract out all of the fabrication and the wiring and all those things of the main big items, and then we bring them all back to our factory. So our factory is a, an assembly shop for sub-assemblies. So all we do is assemble the sub-assemblies and finish the wiring. So we can build multiple modules simultaneously because they're not all um, built in our fa factory. They're built at many factories in parallel. So that enables us to build quickly because most customers procrastinate about placing the order till the last minute. And then, of course, they want built in some phenomenally short time. And um, <laughs> we're able to achieve that. It's interesting how expectations are, I want it yesterday, uh, occurs, prevails in a lot of industries and, and uh, it's a, always a challenge. They, they think you can go through the drive-through at McDonald's and, and get your, your fries, a Coke and a hamburger delivered uh, just like that. And, and sometimes these things are a little bit more challenging, but it sounds like you've you've taken a lot of the challenges out of it. And, and the commissioning, because it's pretty much, your guys have already tested this regularly multiple times, the, the commissioning, it's literally just uh, plug and play because there's very little problems during commissioning is that correct that's exactly right we've done this a number of times many times and so you get better at it and you make the modules you know continuously we say it's a standard module but the modules improve every one we build is better than the last one as you commission and start up you realize that it might have been better to do it a slightly different way to make it easier to hose out or wash down or maintenance or whatever. So everyone's a slight improvement with very minimal changes, but you learn from experience and, and that's the key. You gotta keep learning and improving. Nothing remains the same for long. Control systems improve, valves have changed. You know, all the subparts sometimes change and you need to make sure you get the right quality and the right part for the right job and, and incorporate the improved features or opportunities. So we don't just keep building the same thing every time. It, it, they're all a little different, but almost the same. And, and the other thing that we've put an enormous amount of time into is in the old days, apart from a conventional miner or an ISR miner, you had to make the decision at the beginning of building your mine, am I going to be a, an ammonia precipitate plant or will I be a peroxide precipitate plant? And depending on that 
choice you made at the beginning when you built your, your mine processing plant, it forced you to either go to high temperature calcining and drying or low temperature calcining and drying. And so we, in the early days, had two different designs, uh, the multi-half calciner, very large specific building, or the smaller indirect dryers for peroxide. But now our design has evolved so much that we can sell the same product for uh, ammonia precipitate mine or for a peroxide precipitate process mine. And we have the same engineering solution for both now. So that's made it much more flexible that you don't have to lock in. People ask, quite often ask, why would you choose ammonia for precip as opposed to peroxide? Why, what would you choose? And we would always recommend to our client, if the chemistry of their ore and their upstream process will allow it, we would always say, go for peroxide because it's easier to ship and transport around the world as compared to ammonia. And secondly, the product is uh, peroxide precipitated yellow cake is soluble in the lungs if it's inadvertently inhaled anywhere in the uranium cycle process, whereas ammonia precipitated and calcine product is not soluble in the lungs. So from an occupational health and safety or risk perspective, we would always tell customers to go the peroxide route if the chemistry of their process will allow it. Well, that's some good points. Um, appreciate you sharing those those extra insights. But uh, can you go back to my my scenario there of a you know of a, a three million pound uh, per year operation? Can you just walk us yep. through the process, Glenn, from your end, the design or the proposal process, the design, fabrication, shipping logistics, and then of course the on-site installation and commissioning? Can you kind of just walk us through that in summary for the uh, for the audience? Yeah. So we would put forward a proposal and. The proposal is likely to be a dewatering module that's to take the um, feed from mostly water to mostly solid dry material that for us is done usually in a centrifuge because contains any radiation or dust. It's a closed piece of kit. It's the safest OHS solution. And from the centrifuge, we'd feed that into a horizontal kiln usually electrically heated and the reason for that is the energy efficiency everybody wants to have the most energy efficient piece of kit and lower their operating cost and then you have to scrub the gases the waste gases into an off gas module where we clean the gases which could contain some yellow cake dust or particles we scrub them so that the emissions up the chimney meet world standards anywhere in the world so you have that module and then the dry powder you pack into 44 gallon drums and you ship to your converter anywhere in the world and we do that fully automatically no operator touches the yellow cake takes any samples the drums are filled automatically lidded washed and sampled weighed and all the operator has to do is put the empty drum on the infeed conveyor and take the full drum and put it into the shipping container and send it to your converter and get your money. So you guys handle all this stuff, of course, uh, all the fabrication, as you mentioned before, is, is, is done in Australia. Yeah. Uh, how's the shipping stuff go and, and how do you guys handle dealing with the shipping lines, getting it to where it needs to go, offloading, getting to the site? And then obviously uh, some of your folks are, are getting on an airplane and heading to the site to oversee the commissioning. Yep. Is that correct? Exactly. So on the outside, they appear as just a shipping container on the outside, a standard shipping container on the outside. 
except they have side opening doors. They're, they're locked and shut and they ship as a standard 40 foot or 20 foot container. Sometimes we have to buy the bays above or below on the ship, which means the shipping costs us a little more because we won't want anything stacked on top of the container or around it. But it, it just goes as a, as a container on a ship. We pay, sometimes pay a little extra to make sure we get the position we want. We, we don't want to be on the outside and be exposed to the elements, so we want to be on the inside and we want to choose our spot in the ship and for that we pay more. It gets to site, it gets handled at the wharf just as a standard shipping container. It gets trucked to the, the mine site, offloaded with a crane, then it's um, put into position with a crane. We have specially designed wheels that are um, connected onto the container which allow us to push the containers with a fork truck into position. Once they're in position, they're locked down, the doors are removed, the interconnecting pipe work is connected and the power, cables, water, all the services are connected. All the control system is incorporated in the container modules, the electrics is incorporated in container modules. So all you do is put the main power feed in, the water, wastewater, air and process connections and my engineers will go over and help your tradesmen make those connections. And then as soon as that's complete, we'll do some pre-startup tests to make sure everything that was tested in our factory is working correctly when it's arrived on site. And as soon as that, all those tests are checked and completed and ticked off, then we're ready to start pumping um, yellow cake straight into the module and um, go into full production. Well, that's pretty smooth. I appreciate the details and walking us through that for our audience. Let's uh, let's move over to ISR. Uh, what solutions do you have there? And uh, are there any projects that you want to mention that you guys have uh, supplied? We've done work in ISR in Australia with Heathcote. That's where we started day one, 1999. We've built um, well houses for the ISL operation and we've following on. That's a containerized module now. We have a modularized well house complete with the electrics and the flow meters and MCC for the pumps. So we've got that pretty much nailed and um, and of course we have all the back end from dewatering and we also have a, a license with Areva. We're the only company in the world that have Areva's um, precipitation technology which is very important because the success of a drying calcining plant, the quality of the product is dictated by the quality of the precipitation to get large crystals. Um, Areva, with all its resources now called Arano, put 49 man years of testing and research and development into um, improving the precipitation process. And we spent some time doing some work for Areva in their back end and saw this process way back in 2008. And I said to Areva, we would like to be able to sell that technology. And Areva said, no, it's secret, it's ours. We won't sell it, tell anybody how to do that. So for every year, for the next four or five years, I wrote to Areva a couple of times a year requesting them, could we get access to the technology? Because it made such great crystals, large crystals, which then in the rest of the process generates less dust and um, higher purity quality product. It's such an important, step in the process. I kept writing asking could we get some license or agreement and 
they kept saying no. Anyway, after my persistence of um, about five years, they finally rang me up one day and said, we think we might license you this product. And um, we are now able to build a, a precipitation modular plant based on the Areva patented process, which is now Orano. But it's a very simple process, but very clever. It's like all good things when you know how to do it and you've spent so much time doing all the test work. It turns out to be relatively simple, but it's of course all the detail and all the expertise that goes with it, the control system, the way it's managed and the way things are done. So that's been a great module. Unfortunately, we've not sold one with the current economic markets or whatever, but we did build, I've built a um, test plant which is built into a 20-foot container and the reason why I built this test plant was when we spoke to many customers about using this technology, many people don't believe the benefits, the re reduced reagent usage and the improved quality because they've never seen it and they don't know about it. So I thought we would build a demonstration plant that we could take a bleed stream and take it to a mine and prove, let the mine run its existing either batch precipitation or continuous batch precipitation process and we would install the new Orano process and then prove that the reagent usage went down and the quality of the product went up and quantitatively do an economic return on investment. So we built that module, we haven't used it anywhere. A number of people have asked us to run trials for free but I won't run a trial for free because it's cost us half a million dollars in US to build it and it's fine to run a trial for free it's like everything if you get it for free you don't value it and you don't have any skin in the game so we say to clients it's available for trials but you have to pay for the engineering to run the trial if it turns out you buy the solution from us and Arriva, um, we will discount you the money that it costs you for the trial but we won't run these trials in the world anywhere in the world for free so we put our money where our mouth is. We're convinced it will be of huge benefit and lower the operating and production costs and safety of many of our clients. And we've built a module to, to test and prove that. Well, I think that's uh, that's good information. And I think your offer there is, is, is pretty fair with what you've, what you've done there, especially uh, reimbursing them once they buy the product. I think that's uh, fantastic. Let's Let's talk a bit about phosphate. Now I understand you're you're doing some work in that that side of things. Can you can you kind of highlight that for the audience? Yeah, we um our key strengths are modular plants and process plants. We were approached by um, Foz Energy, the Foz Energy people, to build a demonstration process plant to extract uranium from phosphate. Extracting uranium from phosphate's not new. It's a very old process back in the Cold War days, of course. Uranium was extracted from the phosphate using an SX process, solvent extraction process, where the phosphate was thrown away because it was contaminated and the prize was the uranium in the Cold War days. Clearly, move on 30, 40 years, the prize isn't so much uranium, the commodity price is low, but around the world with many very large phosphate deposits, they are associated with relatively large uranium deposits and the world is going greener and safer and um, there's a huge drive for that. So if you can strip the uranium out of the phosphate and effectively the uranium is a contaminant to the phosphate, to the fertilizer, 
If you can strip that uranium out at low cost, then you end up with a, a byproduct which actually becomes a revenue stream. So we built the, the test plants for Fuzz Energy. We built those modules and we helped them run the trials and the tests in a couple of places around the world. And then it, it, when the uranium price plummeted, interest in the process decreased rapidly because there was an oversupply of uranium and new technology is associated with some risk. So it, development has just ceased and stopped. But I sense in the last sort of two years that the world is starting to wake up that a number of fertilizers have larger amounts of uranium in them than most people would like. It's because it's a byproduct, you know, when we did those cost estimates and designs for Foz Energy, I recall, uh, and I'm, I've just been looking up, a 1 million tonne per annum phosphoric acid plant can produce 880,000 pounds of U3O8. The additional equipment you need to strip the uranium out has a capital cost of about 156 million. That was what we estimated, and the cash operating cost was less than $18 a pound. So whilst it's not a primary, the primary task is to make clean phosphoric acid and phosphate, but as a byproduct, it's a pretty handy number, 880,000 pounds of U308 at a cash operating cost of 18 bucks a pound. Even in today's market, you could make a handy profit. You know, Olympic Dam is a sort of prime example of that the BHP Olympic Dam is they have to strip uranium out so that they can sell their copper concentrate because they can't have it contaminated with uranium. So some of these byproduct plants are gonna hit the ground and be driven by perhaps the OHS and the driver for cleaner phosphate rather than the profit. But at, at these numbers, they're they're profitable businesses. A lot of people you know, a lot of uranium miners would be very happy if their cash cost was 18 bucks a pound. <laughs> yeah, well, there's there's certainly some out there proclaiming that they can get to that price, but we'll we've yet to find out for certain. Um, as as time goes on here and there's more of a push, I think that certainly uh, this could be something that is going to draw more interest, and especially you'll get more interest with a uh, an increase in the price of uranium as well. That'll that'll continue to be more and more desired to be looking at because even if you take the numbers you had there and you look at the eighteen dollars a pound uh, cash costs and so forth to to handle that, you know the economics are there. It's not not terrible. I mean, it's not like it's a three year payback period or anything like that, but it certainly is something that as the uranium price rises, you'll certainly be looking more and more at that. Well, I appreciate the info there on that, Glenn. Um, I was going to ask you, how about patents for your design and, and competitors out there, Glenn? Is there is there other folks out there doing the modular solutions, and they do they have some of the same designs, or do you guys have uh, some protection on some of your designs? How, how does that side look? Yeah, we've um, got the modular plant designs patented um, in all the uranium countries in the world. You can't rely on patents. You know, what the patents have done is told the world that we've done this and told them a little bit about how we do it. You know, we've let the cat out of the bag. What we have to do is improve the processes because other people will copy them. I'm not aware of anyone copying them right now, but you know, that's just time. Someone's gonna start copying them and try and produce it cheaper. But Right. Our advantage right now is the patent works 
some of the time and provide some protection. But the real driver for us is it has to be more efficient, it has to be better, it has to be OHS safer, it has to be easier to start up and build. And if we keep improving and enhancing and the fact that we don't have to put all our engineering in and capitalise it on the next project, we can, we've already capitalised it over a number of projects, we can even beat the countries where they have very low cost labour. So by clever design and innovation, we can beat them. And um, fortunately, the, the companies keep coming back to us and saying, hey, we'd like a new plant, or we'd like an upgrade, or we'd like an improvement. What's the next technology? I think the thing that is worrying me a little bit in this downturn, a lot of people have been laid off. And a lot of the experience and experienced operators have been laid off and engineers and technical people. So a lot of mines are going to struggle to start up again when the prices return and the long-term contracts return. So they're going to need some help. It's going to, I think, the startup, people think that these the shutdown care and maintenance mines are going to start up in a week. It's going to take a lot longer than a week to start up a mine from care and maintenance. You have to retrain, recruit and retrain all the people and restart up all the the mines and equipment. And I think it's going to be different. You know, we are continuing to develop new processes. Uranium mining business is a very large user of reagents. It's one of the biggest costs. Reagent cost is the biggest cost in almost any uranium mine in the world. So you need the clever miners and ones with vision and long term are continually working on reducing their operating costs, i.e. the reagent costs, so that they can ride out the low price and make more money in the high price longer term contract. So I think you'll see that the old mines that were maybe had an operating cost of 45 bucks a pound, they think they're going to start up and, and restart at 45 bucks a pound and hopefully the uranium price will be 60 or 70. But I think you'll find that the other miners that are continuing on will have lowered their operating costs considerably by implementing new technologies and ways to save reagents and recycle and better efficiency kilns and dewatering, better precipitation. All those technologies, you know, this low-cost time is forcing necessity of change. And I think we'll see that the old mines might not start up as quickly and might not be as competitive in the coming years. They're going to need some more technology upgrades and improvements to make good profits in the future. And I think the other thing that's really important is I think, you know, who knows when the price will turn. But, but I actually think it'll. we won't see a long-term continuous price. I think we'll see spikes in the price for a while as mines restart, the price will, there'll be spikes in the price, mines will restart, the co contract price will drop a little bit, then people will hold off for a while and then the price will go back up and then another mine will restart. So I think it's important for all those miners on care and maintenance to start thinking about how are they going to restart their mine at a lower cash operating cost than they were when they shut down.
Right, and you bring up a lot of good points. Uh, first, to the experience, you know, like you said, uh, not only is there people not working in the industry due to the downturn, but then there's also people that are, you know, getting at that age where they're, you know, hanging up the hard hat or, or hanging up the the engineering stamp and and moving on to other things. And and I think that's one of the challenges is you don't have the talent readily available, and you also have talent that is going away and not coming back, and that transfer of experience is not getting down to new entrants into the sector. And it's a real challenge from an educational standpoint and, and a lot of different areas there as a result of where this industry has gone. And I think that you might get some of that return when uh, when the price does go up. But uh, I think that there is quite a gap, Glenn, to get filled there. And, and uh, I think another area uh, that, that uh, gets missed often is, is, you know, there are these optimization efforts to get your prices down, but then also at the same time, uh, you also got to keep your GNA costs in line to better reflect the industry that you're in and the times, the downturn times that you're in. And, and of course, some of these companies have not done that. They've, they've come over here and said, we've saved money here. But uh, meanwhile, why they say they're saving money over here, they're reaching over behind your back and the GNA cost just went up a little bit more. The salaries went up a little bit in a time when you have tough market conditions. So it's, it's also tough to, to make sure you identify the right management teams that are really going after it. Um, interesting challenges. I want to move over to uh, one of the more recent large projects that you guys participated in, uh, HUSAB in, in Namibia. Glenn, can you tell the audience about what equipment you provided for this project, the approximate size, if you can share that, of, of the contract that you did here, ballpark figure, the delivery time frame, and how the installation and commissioning went? HUSAB is a large, the second largest uranium mine in the world in Namibia. It was developed by one of the Chinese utilities. They're the owners. It's state financed. It has long-term contracts with the state. So it's a big operation. It's, um, I think, 15 or 16 million pounds from the top of my head. Um, the contract started in about 2014 for us. It was a rush, like every other one. and um, But unfortunately, the reality set in and we delivered the plant in a year. It consisted of two streams, two parallel streams, two dewatering streams, two calcining streams, two off-gas streams in parallel, and um, one autom fully automatic drum packing plant. So um, we delivered that in less than a year as per the contract, but unfortunately it sat there for another year while the rest of the plant caught up. Um, we commissioned it we made the first drum. Uh, it's quite a funny story. We were there in the September of 2016 and we were ready to go, but unfortunately the yellow cake wasn't coming through the plant and they were, the Chinese owners were keen to make the drum as soon as we could. And I said, you were just wasting your time and money keeping us here. We don't have the time to waste. So we said we would go home and we promised we would return whenever the yellow cake came to feed after precept feed into our plant. So November and December came and in the sort of early in December, I rang the plant manager, managing director and said, how's it going? And he said, oh, we're still trying to um, start up before the new year, before Christmas. And, and I said, okay, but not yet. And he said, no, not yet. So anyway, and I thought there's no chance they're going to start up now that this is sort of, done and dusted. So we 
shut down for Christmas and New Year in our factory. And on Christmas Day, he rang up and said, hey, Glenn, I, I need your crew back to start up. They promise us we'll have yellow cake in two days. So I assembled three of my guys and we flew back um, on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas Day, and we were able to get the plant up and running and we produced the first four or five drums on New Year's Eve and everybody was ecstatic. So it was quite good because they wanted to be producing 10 years from the discovery of the HUSAB deposit was discovered in 2006 and they wanted to be operational within 10 years and we produced the first few drums New Year's Eve 2016. It's got our modular back end. It unfortunately doesn't have our the Arano Arriva fluid bed precipitation. If they had their time again, it would have. And knowing what they know now, we just unfortunately couldn't convince their consulting engineers that this was the right way to go and, and the best solution and the best technology. In some refined plant going forward, it may have our out the Arriva Arano technology for precipitation and it will probably have some more technology reinstalled in it for um, reducing the operating costs. It cost um, tens of millions. It was, you know, I won't say the exact contract value, but, you know, you, you could, it's about twice the size of a single stream. So a single stream is eight million. Um, you can probably do the maths. It's probably not twice that number, but it's a bit higher than one time. So you can probably work out the order of magnitude. But it, it started up very well. The, the fact that we were pre-commissioned, pre-tested was why we could get the plant up and going. You know, Namibia is a, not a third world country, but it's not a first world country. So the skill set and, um, and the operators are not so good. But we, you know, we... We've put a lot of time and effort into developing training manuals. We, we don't write big operating manuals anymore. We do small YouTube videos on how to operate the plant. And then we gave them to the owners and they converted them into English, Namibian and Chinese. And now they have effectively a video library of training man, manuals. And that helped them immensely. And, and we did a lot of those training manuals while we were there trying to help them start up the plant. Because as soon as we go, we want the plant to keep going and we want the plant to be properly maintained and operated. And the best way to do that is to leave them good information that they can readily access. So it, for us, it was a great success. Um, it was very difficult. You know, we built the Langer Heinrich plant in 2008, um, some eight years earlier. And that was difficult and you forget how hard it is to operate, but that was a stick build plant, the Langer Heinrich plant, and we had to reassemble every nut, bolt and wire. This plant was a modular plant pre-built in Australia and taken over there. So the build time was much quicker and the quality control was much better. The startup time was much shorter as well. So, you know, all the benefits of all the things we've been saying for a long time, that was a good showcase. In fact, that's why we were able to start up in such short time and get the drums out, whereas the rest of the plant was a year late. Yeah, I, th I think it makes a lot of sense with, with putting in. It's a smart move to with the cost of uh, some flat screen TVs with the video, the thumb drive uh, repeating itself over and over at the at the location where the worker's doing the work. And, and for those who want to read a translated manual with pictures, I think makes sense as well. And so I think that's a, a smart move on your part by doing the videos. So I think that's uh, highly useful. 
Um, you mentioned Langer Heinrich. Was uh, the design there not uh, receptive to uh, the modular system, or, or what was the? We, we didn't have the modular design when we built Langer Heinrich. It was 2006, 2008. We only developed the modular design in 2012. We, that's when we put all our effort into making things smaller, more compact, and modular. So really, all of the mines pre-2011-12 were stick-build, were supply all the parts and then rebuild it on site. 2012 was the big change. We started building modular test plants and we started building modular real plants. And then, you know, HUSAB is two parallel trains identical to get the capacity up. And that is cheaper in the long term and in the short term and, and it's better operability. People also forget you want to decrease your maintenance cost and your operating cost, but you also need some flexibility and operability. You know, when the HUSAB mine started up, they didn't run at nameplate for quite a while while it was starting up and they were learning how to work it. So one kiln train was able to run at half rate for quite a while before they bought the second one on. And from a maintenance point of view, if they didn't have a spare, they were able to get it from the other train if they hadn't purchased enough spares or whatever. So the modular plant, we didn't have it in, in the early days. And we wouldn't build anything but a modular plant now. We just wouldn't go backwards. It's um, too hard. So um, perhaps hopefully when HUSAB comes back, not HUSAB, when Langer Heinrich comes back online sometime in the future, let's hope it's got the new modular plant, one of our new modular plants in it. Well, yeah, I know it's interesting too with uh, with uh, the, the Chinese there um, with HUSAB. And uh, my understanding is they still haven't reached nameplate or are not even close to it yet. So it sounds like the bottleneck is is probably the upstream side before it gets to you. So I don't, th I think your equipment is probably running just fine, Glenn. It's just that uh, they got some other challenges there that's not quite in getting to capacity for them. Now, I want to ask you uh, a little bit more there, just, just real quick, wrapping up on HUSAB. How was, how was the experience with the Chinese as an end user, and what experiences and lessons did you learn, uh, did you take away from the client experience there and the project process? Yeah, they, they had appointed an EPCM contractor who was based in Johannesburg. The Chinese bought the mine from Kalahari Mining, the project from Kalahari Mining. In the end, the order was placed out of the Johannesburg and the delivery site was Namibia. It, it was like the League of Nations. We had the Chinese owners, the Namibian operators and construction workforce. And at times on that site, they had 2,000 men assembling the site. So in that 2,000 men on the site, they had every nationality in the world working there. And, um, and then, of course, we had the, the Namibians, the Africans, the South Africans, and, and with us, the Australians as well. So it was a League of Nations. So it's very hard to go through the translations, the meanings, the contracts. It's very challenging and causes a lot of stress and aggravation. But as a, you know, at the end of the day, the Chinese just wanted the plant that worked and operated, and we delivered our end of the bargain. Um, our plant met nameplate in the test work, and we've been paid in full. But 
it was a very torturous, um, difficult time to get from the order to start up. But, but at the end, you know, you're happy. You celebrate the success and, and we had a great celebration hosted by the Chinese for achieving the drum production in the end of 2016. But there was a lot of pain and stress on the way. We, we would still be there now if we were stick building that plant. The difficulties with the skill set of the tradesmen, the construction, the language, the environment were so difficult. You know, we're de we were building this thing in the middle of a national park desert, so um, it's not easy. <laughs> and not for the right. faint-hearted. That <laughs> sounds like a, a project management nightmare, and probably now, now it's going to be uh, come to Adelaide uh, with your project management team. Let's sit down and let's, let's iron out some of these details before we even start or even sign a proposal. That sounds like a meeting in Adelaide or, or somewhere beneficial to iron out some of these difficulties that uh, from a from a subcontractor supplier standpoint, having to deal with. Uh, let's just say talent or, or, or lack thereof for a sophisticated uh, group like yourself installing, you know, efficient equipment and dealing with inefficient labor on the ground and management on the ground. I, I think that there was undue headaches. And so probably, yeah, I, I think you guys have probably considered this now and, and probably have uh, got some different, different offers to, uh, to produce for these, these types of clients that might present probably unseen, unforeseen uh, challenges. Is that right? Uh, the the real positive upside of this is it's a great reference site for us now. We can send people there. It's a little difficult, but we can send people there. The Chinese are a little protective of a lot of things now, but they will allow people to go and see our plant. And once you see it and understand it, a picture tells a thousand words and an operating plant tells a million words. So that's been great for us. And they, they've allowed a number of people to go, which to their credit, and I thank them for that that in some cases they haven't allowed people to go and for whatever reason, you know, that's not my business. But to us, they've been um, polite enough to allow on at least two occasions people to visit and see our piece of plant and equipment. And Glenn, uh, are there any negatives to your guys' designs? Uh, what have you seen over the last few years with your designs? What do you have you guys done to improve them? And are there any negatives to what you've done? You can always improve, Andrew. Every time we build something or design it and we install it, every time after we've done a startup and a commissioning and commissioning and startup, the guys come back with a list and say to me, we should have done this this way. We should have changed those valves. We should have moved them down closer to the ground or to the operating level. And we capture all them. It's all designed on 3D CAD. We capture all of them, those items. So the kilns, partly why we put together this package. Um, we've been in this business 20 years and I've been to probably 25 uranium mines in the world to see real operating plants. And usually we've been there to solve a problem in their drying and packaging area, calcining, drying, packaging, dewatering. So after you visit all those mines and see all the different technologies and we've in designed and built most of them, you learn what works well and why. And the key rider is the simple stuff works the best. And if you can make it better, improve maintainability and operability and lower cost, then they're great selling things. So we continue to learn all the time. And really all of our experience came from 
all of the poor experiences and poor designs that other people had built all around the world. But the one thing you should take away, any process engineer should take away from a uranium mine is first you need an ore body that's large enough and, and good enough quality and a process that can leach it and convert it into uranium. And you need the experience to design and build the plan and you need the experience to operate and run it as well. So, and the other thing that we, you know, just has come up of recent times is at the back end of the plan, the final point of getting the drum, if you have a high chloride content or a high sulfate content, you can't remove the high chloride or sulfate just as it goes in the drum. You actually have to fix the chemistry problem in your plant and process many steps before you get to the back end. Quite often people come to me and say, this is our feed and this is the spec for the converter. Will your plant do this? And I say, no. I said, you can't get, a me our mechanical plant will not fix the chemistry in your feed or your ore body. You have to fix that further back in the process. It doesn't matter how good we are or how how great our solution is, you, you know, I keep saying to people, you can't fix the chemistry with a mechanical device. So I hope people think long and hard about that before they come and ask us to fix their chemistry with the drying and packing plant, or why doesn't the drying and packing plant produce product in spec for the converter without penalties? <laughs> you know, I laugh. Why? Because the feed is out of spec. So... <laughs> Go, oh, Glenn. Looks like they're coming to you expecting you to pull out your wizard hat and do some magic for them. That's what they hope. But unfortunately, it doesn't, you know, the real world doesn't work like that. The, the sad bit is, is as experience is lost through, you know, mothballed plants and put on care and maintenance and people retire, a lot of the old experience is gone. So that, that level of detail doesn't seem to exist in the current batch of operating plants it it's slowly been lost over the years and um anyway it, it's good for us but but you're right we can't pull a rabbit out of the hat and fix the problem with their ore body in the last step as you put it in the drum and that frustrates me immensely when they come and and say here yeah, th this is the feed and this is what we want but well good luck right and it's always best foot forward type type thinking too where where you know we want this yesterday and, and we can restart this and you're going to construct this in this amount of time and you know always the schedules are always way too optimistic and it never comes in time, time yeah. literally all the time and yeah it's really really interesting how the thinking goes there well, there's got to be at some point there'll be some some management teams and and CEOs of of companies that are maybe going to go through this process during the next cycle in, in uranium price, which will probably listen to this. Why Adelaide Control? Why should they look at your design and your company? How can interested parties uh, seek proposals and more information and reach out to get some consulting from you and Adelaide Control? Yeah, so we're going to sell you some experience based on 20 years of experience of many mines in Kazakhstan, Australia, America, Canada, everywhere in the world, all the uranium producers. So we've learned from all of those mines. Our expertise is mostly the back end, the drying, um, dewatering, drying, calcining, packing. That's where we are expert, the experts in the world. 
But we've also worked with other people that are other experts in the world in trying to minimise the reagent usage and, and other things. So we're in good contact with a lot of the smaller players. The big players won't change and can't change. They're just too large. You, you need to go with a, a smaller team that has taken some risk and generated some good results. So we, we've worked with some very interesting and very clever people around the world to minimise operating costs and reagent usage and drying and calcining costs. So if you want to do something different and do something better than anyone else in the world and get it at a lower price and a lower capex, opex and maintenance cost, come and see us. We'd like to help you. That sounds good, Glenn, and uh, it sounds like people are, are not only getting a, a very efficient product but uh, and a solution, but also a, a lot of experience and, and mental capital that probably doesn't exist at a lot of other competitors and, and some of the other uh, folks in the industry, so I, I appreciate the information. Well, Glenn, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I think we'll leave it there and, and lots of stuff to consider here and, and wishing you good luck with your business and success going forward, and uh, we hope you'll come back. Ah, thanks, Andrew. Thank you for the opportunity, and and I hope your listeners will have gained something, some insight into the uranium business and the uranium processing. Um, there's a lot going on, and there's going to continue to be a lot going on. It, it's an interesting business and mark, and challenging. <laughs>